All right, this is uh, Ink Studs on CITR 101.9 FM. I'm sitting here with uh, Seth. Seth was my first guest four years, probably exactly four years ago. It was here within a month or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, luckily, I uh, didn't scare you away with that first interview. So, yeah. I remember it being fine. It, you know, a lot of people seem to like it. I've, you know, heard feedback. People really liked it. Someone did a thing about it on the message board about one of the questions you answered? Oh yeah? Well, I, not that I can remember anything. It was about. it was something about, I had asked about or we were out talking about comics you're interested in you talk, said that you weren't really into European comics. Mm-hmm. And everyone was like, but there's all this great European stuff. and Yeah, people are strange. It's like, uh, are you required to like everything? I don't really understand that. Um, expressing a preference for something isn't the same as damning it all. No, I get into this problem a lot when I'm arguing about technology. This happened last night at the book, the, the uh, event I did about uh, the look of the book. It was mm-hmm. called Designing Books. All of us on stage were pretty, um, I wouldn't say anti-technology, but it was like a preferred print to uh, the electronic media. And you could just see there was one girl in the front who was like so anxious to argue about this. She heard a question, <laughs> hand, and she had her hand up like for about five minutes. And then she expressed the usual, you know, disdain of, you know, don't you think that electronics can be just as interesting as uh, print? And, you know, of course, one says yes, of course they can. But it was just, they're completely offended that you don't share their opinion. Um, I don't really understand that. I have no problem with people having completely different opinions than mine. Yeah. Um, it's not like there was an, it was an inability to be reasonable about it. Um, I don't know what these people's complaints were about my opinion about European comics. I think it was um, just that you kind of maybe surprised that you'd not necessarily someone like Safar or yeah, and, and I can I can see why you wouldn't. Yeah, culturally it doesn't ring with me in the yeah. same way that North American comics do. Certainly, it's not a I don't have a blanket condemnation of yeah. European comics. I think European comics are uh, very interesting, and of course, I have like my handful of people that I was interested in or am still interested in. Um, I just relate more strongly to the cartoonists from my own um, continent. Mm-hmm. Well, it seems I was talking to uh, Kim Thompson. We were talking about uh, Jacques Tardy, and one thing I was kind of that really stuck in my head is like you talk about how these cartoons are very famous in Europe and how popular they are, and they fail here. Well, to me, like I can see why that happens. I don't see someone like Inky Balau necessarily translating here well to North American audience. It's not the same storytelling style. It's not mm-hmm. the same narrative that we experience here. It's just, it's not the same. Yeah. It's words and pictures, and that's... Yeah, I mean, and a lot of that stuff comes from genres that don't mean anything to me, too. I mean, I I have no trouble, like, expressing no interest in Bilal, for example. Uh, I probably would have liked him as a teenager, but from what I've seen of it, it just seems like it's coming from a genre that doesn't appeal to me particularly, any more than if I saw a film that looked quite the same. Um, it, the subject matter might be what's turning me off there, or the surface style of it more than anything. But certainly, you know, um, other genre work from there might appeal to me for the exact opposite reasons. Like mm-hmm. something like Shalon appeals to me because it has like a surface style to it that is appealing to my aesthetic. Whereas it's also probably in a genre that I have no interest in as well. The clear line. Yeah, yeah, that stuff is obviously was really influential on me when I was young. And it, it derives a lot of, or derives a lot of influence from the same kind of type of stuff that you're also interested in, like a lot of the deco. Yeah, aesthetic. for sure. Yeah, it's all early 20th century derived. I mean, 
I mean, over there, obviously, it all comes from uh, Hergé. But the stuff that Hergé was looking at is probably, you know, I'm sure that Hergé was looking at, uh, at North American material at that time, too, some of the people who were bringing in a clear line style. I always think he might have been looking at Julius Williams. There seems to be a real um, connection there. And Julius Williams was working maybe earlier than, than Hergé. I'd have to check the dates on that. Um, or even someone like H.M. Bateman in, uh, in England, who really, I think, is the person you should... Well, actually, I was going to say, it's probably Caron Dash who gets the credit for Clear Line um, uh, as the great ancestor. And then you go to Bateman, and then, so, and then I was thinking maybe Bateman to Hergé. But truthfully, it's probably Caron Dash to Hergé. You probably didn't need to go across the channel to <laughs> Well, I mean, uh, I guess the, the thing about comics especially for yourself you're not working in a vacuum no not in the least influences are yeah exactly I think that that's natural in a medium I think that um, you do meet uh, younger cartoonists who don't have any great uh, connection to the medium and don't you know have, uh, don't have a, a great deal of material they're drawing from and that's good too uh, but I think most cartoonists come from a place where they're well versed in the in field around them. That's why they get interested in it. They're interested in the actual practitioners, and it draws them in. Do you feel that makes you a better cartoonist knowing your roots? It does. I think it's important. Um, for me, it's important, at least. Um, I feel part of the tradition. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like the cartoonists of the past are somehow connected to me, and that hopefully I'll be connected to the cartoonists of the future, that there's a lineage of some way, some sort. It was, I have uh, a neighbor who was a cartoonist, and he was telling me how he was shocked that someone um, had, n had never read a Love and Rockets comic who does comics that look very similar, mm -hmm. and just how you couldn't understand not reading Love and Rockets when you're doing this. Was work. the person aware of it? Like, he heard Rockets of it, but okay. he never, he'd never mm. read it. Well, it's funny, you know, sometimes I understand that people can't get into Love and Rockets because it's a long running series, mm -hmm. and it seems intimidating. But if that's the kind of work you do, you'd think you'd immediately dive in. Um, I know that I'm usually pretty interested in anything that seems to be in a similar vein as my own work, yeah. which I think is pretty natural. I think that most writers or filmmakers or whatever would be interested in people who are doing things that are in the same vein as themselves. And I kind of feel like if they're not, they're not really true to themselves in a way sometimes. Like it's, I've seen yeah, people who, who do, it, not in comics, but in other like music and stuff who would be playing a certain genre of music and have no interest in that genre like well why do you create it if you yeah. don't care for it? it yeah well it's hard for me to understand although I suppose I could imagine that some people are just purely interested in creation yeah. although it's hard for me to imagine that as well because you can't just create things out of thin air I tend to think that everything is connected to other things yeah. um, it's like I'm obviously I wouldn't be doing comics if there hadn't been people who invented comics I would have come up with it and you know and I think that so just naturally you end up looking around at things that will teach you. The the creative spark is interesting. Um, one of my friends, an animator, um, Rebecca Darb, mm -hmm. one of Vancouver's best and brightest. She tried to do a jam comic at work with some animators, and none of them could figure out what to do. Really? That seems surprising. That was that was really surprising for her, but it's just these people that can draw mm -hmm. incredibly, but can't work creatively. Well, I'm surprised since they're animators as well. It's a narrative art form. Yeah. Are they not... Uh, are they just people who just do the, uh, the drudgery, or were they people who actually have animated films they've created? 
this would be in a, in a studio, though, of people that are probably doing, like, the storyboard. Okay, or, well, I suppose that's possible. Some people just do the technical stuff. Yeah. That takes away the flavor now, doesn't <laughs> yeah. it? Yeah. <laughs> now, I guess the main thing near Vancouver Fort, um, I guess maybe to stay on target, is uh, George Sprott, mm-hmm. your, uh, your latest book, The Story of a Man's Life. Um, I read through it and I kind of like jotted down a bunch of notes of uh, different things I was getting um, from the book and one of the big things that really struck me it seems like a contemplation on mortality well that's true Um, I think to some degree that's kind of what all my work is about Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if I made a calculated plan towards that but I think that my thinking heads progressively in that direction as I get older. Um, I think about my own mortality all the time. Um, I'm very, um, very, uh, what I'm looking for, uh, preoccupied with time. Mm -hmm. Um, It's probably a big part of it is the cartoonist life, that you spend so much time by yourself. And sitting at that drawing table for so long, every day, your mind, it tends to wander, and, and where it tends to wander is through your own life, I find. Um, and I think that it could just be my own inclinations, I don't know, but I tend to think a lot about my own past and about the years creeping by. Um, I think it's almost hard for me to imagine a story that, I don't think I would have said this 10 years ago, but a story that isn't just about somebody looking back at their life. That seems to me to be what a story is. I guess that kind of steeps you in kind of the narrative fiction that you're focused on. Oh, for sure. I mean, I'm already planning. I mean, Clyde fans to a big degree is about that as well. And yeah. that's something I started years and years and years ago. Um, the next graphic novel I'm starting to work at in my mind is also involves old people. Um, it probably has a lot to do with the fact that my parents were old when I was a child and that they talked to me a lot about their lives. And I think that imprinted on me. Um, sort of a a blueprint of what a narrative is. Um, It wasn't any surprise to me that, that, like, what George Sprott was about. I mean, as as soon as I started fleshing out the story, it was heading in directions I knew it would go. I mean, it's, you know, there's a tendency when you write to want to shake things up, like, oh, I should do a book about something else. You know, I've done a couple of things on this, and people are going to say, here's more of the same. But um, I think that's always a wrong impulse. I think the, the correct impulse is to go with what you actually feel, what uh, is vital to you, and it, who cares if it's more of the same. You really have to keep returning to those themes if that's what interests you. Well, I think that's, I mean, when it comes down to it, you're telling the story that you want to tell. Mm-hmm. Not and what's that, the point otherwise? Yeah. yeah. I mean, like, I'm not going to suddenly do a story about two teenagers falling in love. It's just <laughs> not my topic. Oh, yeah. No, I don't think I can... When you're young, it's different. I know that like when I was in my early 20s, I did think a lot about trying to write love stories, for example. Um, and I think it's because I was more interested in love then, too. Um, it's, not that I'm, you know, it's not that I'm not interested in the idea of love, um, but it doesn't strike me as an exciting motor for a story any longer. Um, I think as I'm older, maybe lost love seems more interesting to me <laughs> than love, because it's, it's about things that have happened in the past. And I am... I think my whole, all my work is really 
is basically, a lot of time my work gets um, classified as nostalgia, and I've been thinking about this a lot lately because I hate the word nostalgia. Well, nostalgia refers to something within your own past, not necessarily yes. a different well, past. Well, actually, I'm not so sure about that. I think nostalgia has come to mean a belief in, the, in a golden period, that you're looking back on some period with like a golden glow. Um, I think in the popular world, nostalgia certainly relates to people's uh, pasts. Mm -hmm. um, and in our culture, it's very much about recapturing like these um, superficial elements from the past. If you, if you look around on YouTube, for example, at like you know things from uh, like clips from shows from when you were younger or something, the comment section is positively revolting. People are like going, "Oh man, wasn't everything better in the past?" Like, God, they couldn't write cartoons like that now or whatever. And it's like they're writing about Scooby-Doo or something. You're yeah. Like, Jesus Christ, that was the worst shit that was ever <laughs> Just a couple of potheads in a van. <laughs> yeah. And the funny thing is, it's just a simple matter that this is when people were around. And so they've, um, they can't separate their good feelings for an object for its intrinsic value. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have very good feelings for like local television shows I watched when I was growing up, but I have no illusion that these were great works of art. Um, I'm interested in the early 20th century because of the aesthetics of it primarily, and I think that they are, it was a superior time uh, for craftsmanship than it is now. Um, I don't believe that 1920 was a better time than now. That's a very complicated argument. Um, but I'm labeled as nostalgic mostly because my characters are looking backward. And I thought, why is that nostalgia necessarily? They're not always looking backward. For example, George Sprott is not about a man whose life was great in the past and he's yearning for a wonderful past. It has not, George is actually a little superficial. And he's not a very great... You don't really like the character. No, no, and that's intentional. <laughs> it's intentional that he'd be ambiguous, so you make up your own mind whether you like him or not. But I think the reason why the work gets labeled as nostalgic, besides the fact that I've already... It's like, it's, it's my label, and so it naturally comes out... But I think part of it is is that the work implies things have been lost. So in those, um, in fact, this just occurred to me the other day as I was trying to puzzle it out in violence. Someone was talking to me about it. And um, for example, in those little histories of the buildings uh, in the book, it implies that um, something good passed away and there's a shabbier version of it today. And I was thinking that's basically where the nostalgia, it's, it maybe is a fair uh, label against me there because it does imply things were better in the past mm -hmm. and that we're in a particularly shabby present. And I think I have to make it an effort to get that out of my next book, to try and have a more even-handed looking back without... My problem is I think that the past, that the present is always has a quality of sadness to it. Um, well, basically, let me put it this way. Everything is always moving into the past, every moment. Mm -hmm. It's moving out of our grasp. I think the fact that things are always moving from the present into the past create a kind of baseline experience of sadness, at least for myself. It isn't that the things from the past are anything that are necessarily wonderful, but the fact that you can't access them any longer. It's lost. Yeah, it's lost. That quality, which I find um, very melancholy, uh, gets into my work all the time, and that's very easy to see as a nostalgic impulse. But I'd have to say I never think about that kind of nostalgia, like, oh, God, I wish I was 20 again and I could you know, be back in that world. I, I'm very interested in my own past, but I don't have a nostalgic desire. It's more about refining what has been lost. It's connecting to it. Yeah. 
And the, yeah, sorry. That's ahead. a really big part in this is you go over a lot is the loss of the, the footage. Mm-hmm. You really touch on that is how yeah. you know, and you've heard lots of situations like that where like at one time uh, the whole bunch of silent movies were all destroyed because they're made with really flammable mm-hmm. film and stuff. Yeah, in fact, most silent films are lost. I think like eighty percent of them. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I find that kind of tragic actually. Um, I guess I find anything that's irreparable is tragic. I've always had kind of an innate terror of irreparable things. Which is funny, which is what's great about cartooning because there's no real, um, there's always white out. <laughs> you, you can fix up any mistakes. <laughs> there's, I mean, there's a certain, I don't know if you, you'd agree with this, so there's an aspect of it, that disposability within the media itself, too, which doesn't exist. It does exist, but it doesn't exist. I don't know if it even exists at all anymore. Is there any comic book? Is that what you're talking about, how it was a disposable medium primarily? Yeah. God, it's hard to even imagine a comic book that somebody's not sticking into a bag somewhere now. None of mine are. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, you're right. There are obscure things still. And in 10 years, people will be trying to track down mini comics that they just will not be able to find. Which, even now myself, I'm trying to track down, you know, Mini con, like I would love to get like some of Chester's old yeah. mini comics. Yeah. I mean, I tried bidding once; someone had them all bound into a little book on eBay. Oh, that's a nice idea. Yeah, I should do that myself. I've, got <laughs> I've been doing a lot of binding lately, so that would make sense. We, we can talk about that later. <laughs> yeah. I've, my book collection is so overwrought with bound books. <laughs> Same here. I've got a commercial bindery near me, and I've been I'm binding constantly. It's a great, it's a great feeling. It changes the nature of the work. Because suddenly they're books, and you can pull them out and read them. And it's there for good. Yeah. Well, if anything's here for good, it's all. It's going there in, for it's our all lives. going in the dumpster someday. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be buried with it. <laughs> Coffin made out of comic books. <laughs> Thank God they're all black hardcovers. Um. Aesthetically, I found it interesting. I kind of felt like the pages themselves were kind of framed like a TV. It's not intentional. Um, yeah. Some of them are, of course, but mostly the modern stuff is like when you yeah. look at his pre-TV yeah. days. It's not. There's some of that intentionally in there, and some of it probably not. Um, mostly, the book was created. The way the book is put together is to just create a kind of fragmented reading experience, and so it has a. A variety of approaches going on because I wanted to, I wanted to, in more than in my other books, allow the reader to make up their own mind about a lot of things. Mm -hmm. And so that meant that the more fragmentation involved in how the story was put together, the better. Do you feel removing yourself from the story, you know, stepping far away from the autobio concept, which you've been kind of doing more and more with time, Mm -hmm. that helps the ambiguity of? The storytelling? Um, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of autobiographical stuff in there that, of course, like all fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, but not obvious. Not obvious. Yeah, I think that it's easier to write away from autobiography, that's for sure. I think the fragmentation is kind of a technique on its own, sort of separate from that. It's just a simple matter of not giving people all the information or giving them contradictory information. It was important for me in this book to not make George an obviously likable character, um, but also, if you're writing about someone, it's hard not to invest them with some quality of interest if they're your main character. So I knew that 
the reader would probably feel sympathy towards George naturally, and that's why the more you uh, muddy the water, the greater the chance they'll make up their own decision on whether they actually like him or not. If they're coming from the first page, they're going to like him. It can't be helped. I think there's a natural impulse to like the protagonist. And nothing is in the book that's like so horrible that makes George like a, a hateful person, but he does... There's enough stuff in there where you could decide this is not a person I would really consider of great value. He seems like maybe just someone that's been swallowed by time. Yeah, I wanted him to be somewhat mundane, someone that's not important yet still was like not a completely um, everyday character. Yeah. It's kind of important for me that he be a famous person, even though it's a very small fame. He's just a local uh, television person. Maybe that's appropriate to be in cartoons. It is. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's certainly applicable. I mean, it's. Um, the kind of fame you have as a cartoonist is of a very low level. Um, and it probably, yeah, I actually hadn't given that much thought, but they're probably very comparable. Um, and it's, I wanted it to be a kind of person who slips into obscurity. That seemed important to me, too. And that's another thing that always happens with cartoonists as well, mm -hmm. very easily. Which is something that's important to you, is finding those folks mm -hmm. that have fallen into obscurity, like that little, uh, was it 20 books? 40. 40, 40 books. cartoon books of interest, yeah. Well, I'm interested in the cartoons of the past, and I also think that in some cases I feel I owe a debt to the cartoons of the past. Mm -hmm. um, not to overstate it, but I like the idea of being able, someone like Doug Wright, who I feel was an important Canadian cartoonist, I think it's nice to be able to try and rescue him before obscurity gets there entirely. And I would hope that cartoonists of the future might have the same interest in me. Mm -hmm. I know a lot of people who got the book that never would have seen that work, mm -hmm. but just like swallowed it whole. So, well, it's pretty exciting to suddenly have like an entire—not an entire body, but a huge body mm -hmm. of work from a cartoonist in front of you who's like really highly skilled, and to say like, I've never heard of this guy. That's always exciting. The really interesting thing about that book, too, is that um, with a lot of collections, um, you see specific points in that creator's time, like the Stanley collections mm -hmm. that you've been working on and are coming out right now. Yeah. Those look at specific works of Stanley. Yeah. It's not a, a wider lens, where with the right book, it is this, as wide as the lens can go. Yeah. Once the second book's out, I think it will make an interesting you'll see an interesting career arc. Mm -hmm. I think it's, um, I think the first book is great, but I, in some ways I think the second book will be better because it moves into, but I, I never like to overstate these things because you don't want to create false um, uh, expectations of an artist, but Wright's work gets more interesting because it becomes quieter. And it's still always just a gag strip about two kids and the trouble they're in. But I find that the way the work, like you could, it starts out very Dennis the Menace, very um, you know antic stuff and mischief, and but by the time you get to the mid '60s, it really starts to switch into a very low key domestic strip, and a lot of the times, the so-called gags are really very small incidents, and that's when the work gets really interesting to me. And there's about a good ten year period there where I think it's very unique, and I can't think of another strip that's quite like it. It's not mind-blowing in the way that you would... You might read... An uh, average person would probably just read it without giving it any thought. But as a cartoonist, you realize it's quite different from the American strips of the same period. 
uh, it's very unsentimental, which is very appealing too. It's the exact opposite of the family circus. <laughs> never In play, every way. Yeah. <laughs> you never play those easy cards, yeah. you know, like of the cuteness. Or in fact, the children are never cute. It's funny. Once in a blue moon, they'll do something like you know, bring their mother some flowers or something. But it, it seems to refrain from ever getting into that territory, which I find interesting because that's, as a commercial artist, that's what would have been asked of him. If well, that wanted that. And being a father himself. I mean, you talk to parents, and they can't help but gush over yeah. their children, regardless of you know what kind of messes yeah. they may be. I get the impression Wright was more of an old school kind of father. I mean, mm-hmm. he was from Britain, and I think that there was some quality of emotional restraint in his behavior. Well, I mean, also not having a father himself. Too. Yeah, exactly. Which is, I think, one of the most interesting aspects of his backstory. Just the fact that he was doing that strip about children before he even had any children. Focus of the strip is primarily a father and son. It's very interesting when you never had a father. Mm-hmm. You can't really. It's like you don't want to overblow that, but you also you can't ignore it. It's an interesting fact. That kind of segue or goes with like kind of what you're doing, both kind of going for something that you can't have, right? Like yeah, for I you, you're you're true. kind of looking at the past, yeah, with you know the aesthetics, and he's kind of looking at something that he. Yeah, well, I think you're drawn to, the topics you're drawn to aren't really up to you. They come out of your own life history somehow. Um, sometimes you figure it out, and sometimes you don't. A lot of the times when you finish a book and um, it's published and you look at it later, you make connections with the work that you didn't realize were there at all, which seem, sometimes seem very smart, like, oh, this is very interesting that I put these two things together and it looks like I did it on purpose. Um, and other times you just actually see things in the work that are about yourself that you didn't realize were in there. And I, I, I would probably prefer that more um, accidental kind of storytelling tricks, or lack of a better term, mm-hmm. tricks. But um, it kind of avoids from being so technically specific, which sometimes I don't know if you've read Astros Polo. I haven't yet. I've got it in the pile. <laughs> we all have the stacks. Yeah, but it hasn't. I just got it a few weeks ago, so I haven't read it yet. Well, there's a, I mean, it's very, I mean, it's an incredible book, but I mean, it's very, it's specific, a lot of specific device, a lot of everything's linking up. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I can take away from just letting the story move. Well, I actually think it's probably impossible not to write a book and have stuff in there you didn't plan. Yeah. As calculated as it is, I mean, I'm pretty sure that Chris Ware has told me that and he, he couldn't be more calculated and careful in how perfectly and gem-like he's constructed things that there's lots of stuff in there he sees that, you know, you realize mm-hmm. later. I think that's enough. I mean, all, th- all throughout all art, I mean, those, even like the most base kind of, in fact, maybe, maybe it's most true of things that are just straight genre stuff where you don't think you're writing about yourself at all and then it's uh, sometimes embarrassingly about the person. Yeah. Even Jack Kirby... Oh, did yeah. stuff about himself. Oh yeah, and Kirby's work is probably, I mean, just looking through it, it's just mm-hmm. a gold mine of accidental images, you know. It's, I'm sure a psychiatrist would have a field day with Jack Kirby's work. <laughs> <laughs> um, I totally had uh, something I was going to say and it fell out of my head. Um, with the buildings that you're showing in the George Sprott from, mm-hmm. your, uh, from Dominion, yep. your massive city in your basement, 
Yeah, <laughs> not in the basement at the moment, thank God. Is it an art gallery? Yeah, it's been touring around for a while now, and it probably will still for another year or two, so I don't have to have it back in the house for a while. <laughs> How many buildings? It's only about 50, I think, right now, maybe 54 or something like that. Well, only. But it takes up a lot of space. I can imagine. Um, I'm curious, is what comes first, um, especially with George Sprott, the buildings or the stories? and tying together. Well, it's funny, you know, Dominion was created as part of a back story I was working on for another graphic novel. Um, I started writing a story that I was going to do after Clyde Vans that was about five characters that were, they were short, five short stories that um, were unconnected and then I just decided to put them in the same space, the same city, and then I thought that would connect them in some manner and then I thought uh, it would be smart then to to start that book with a big history of that city, I thought would be interesting. And uh, to make a long story short, I had to figure out how to write a whole history of the city, and I thought that's a big task. I mean, I could start with the usual, you know, in 1862, they <laughs> rolled in or whatever, but I decided instead to do it in a more, more organic manner by just, um, I'd make up one business, and then yeah. I would make up another, or a, a city structure or something and I hope if I continue to like make write down these little imaginary histories of these little places very short brief things but eventually I would start to amass some sort of information and start connecting and then you would get, it would get bigger and bigger and in the process of doing that I built a little model of the first one and uh, I'm not quite sure why I did at that point but um, then I built another and another and it turned into a project of its own and it did work out that that was a good method I've actually in the years since I've got a half-decent understanding of this city now, Dominion. That story that I was planning is dead. That's not going to happen. I lost interest in that story. But I've continued to explore the city, and it's become the background for other stories. All my stories now take place in Dominion, even though it's not obvious. Like, Wimbledon Green takes place in Dominion, but it's never stated. Um, the only way you would know that is that um, the drugstore, Web Drugs, where the, uh, the, the old man who collected comics, uh, Wilbur R. Webb, his drugstore I've built, and it's in the Dominion City uh, display, so you can see, oh, this is part of Dominion. But it's not important, it's all in the background. Um, and George Sprout takes place in Dominion. Um, although, I don't think I used the word Dominion maybe once or twice. It specifically refers to one of the neighborhoods of Dominion, which is Lakefield. Um, but anyhow, <laughs> the point is, those buildings were constructed for George Sprout, in the, as I invented, well, let's say three out of the three out of the five buildings I built in there didn't exist before I started writing the story. Um, the television station did not exist, but another television station existed. Now they both exist. I noticed in the uh, the uninked book, I think mm -hmm. that has the television, the yeah. other television station. Yeah, there. there's, a, there's one that's more like the CBC, and then there's another one that's more like... Uh, CTV? Yes. <laughs> and George works more at CTV than CBC. And um, so basically, it's like they just easily knitted their way into the world of Dominion. Once I uh, started the story, new places were added to the city and it connected with old places. So suddenly I had new connections, but they it was like very seamless. I knew where it was coming from. Does it kind of like work out from a center or do like blocks shift and buildings shift? And It started very basically from what would be like the downtown. Mm -hmm. I haven't spent much thought on the residential areas, although I know where they are now. At one point, I didn't know anything. Like when I started, I just knew a street, basically. And I have not worked street by street out in any sense. 
but it took a long time. I'd say it took about four years until I had like a map. The map was like of the neighborhoods. That changed my whole understanding of it. Each step along the way, little incremental steps, shaped what the city would look like. And I have a much clearer idea of it now. At some point I, I realized it was a dock, a port city, and also a mining city. These like little simple decisions suddenly changed like everything I'd been thinking. Oh, okay. And then you start getting certain um, uh, motifs develop about it. Well, if it's a mining city, that's quite different than if it's a steel town or something. And, mm -hmm. and these little it's got to be it's got to be in the mountains. Yeah, exactly. And you start realizing, you know, like how far away are they from the mines? Uh, yeah. What are they mining there? You know, it turns out they're mining chalk, which makes no sense. There's, <laughs> there's no chalk in Canada, but, or there may be chalk, but there's not chalk in Northern Ontario. It's but a I fine just like Canadian it. chalk. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I just like it, and I just like the idea. I thought that's nice. So it's called Dominion is the chalk city, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And it just builds up little details. And it, any thing about Dominion that I like is that it's not like. I'm trying to make a very serious thing. It's like George Sprott is a fairly serious story, but it, he can still live in the same town with Wimbledon Green, which seems incongruous, but that's fine for me. Well, they're, they're kind of uh, shaped from the same cloth. And they are. Too. They're kind of two sides of the same coin, really. Um... Any good purchase in San Diego? In San Diego? Geez, I don't even know. Let me think about that. <laughs> I don't think, you I'm know, I don't now. buy much stuff on the road in the way I used to. Um, when I used to travel around, I would come home with a gigantic bag full of stuff, but the internet has changed that. You mm -hmm. don't need, uh, sadly, you don't need to do things the way you used to. I don't even bother to look up what secondhand bookstores are in towns when I go to them anymore because it's, I don't want to cart the books around. It's easier to just buy them off of eight books. Um, did I buy anything interesting in San Diego? I'm pretty sure I bought a couple of interesting things in New York on that tour. Uh, you were at the Strand, were you? I was, but I mostly bought some stuff at uh, MoCA, I guess. Oh, okay. I got there. I think I picked up... I, well, I'm sure I brought home Jerry Moriarty's Jack Survives, even though I have the original. <laughs> but, um, but that was a great book. Maybe it is really fantastic. Finest, one of the finest books of the last year. I think I bought Multiforce because I was afraid I wouldn't get it when I got home. Um, I did, I'm surprised you'd be reading Multiforce. Well, I'm interested in everything in some yeah. on some level. Not everything, but I mean, um, I actually like... Uh, um, now I'm blanking on his name. Brinkman? Yeah, I actually like Brinkman. Um, I don't like him in the way I like Ben Catcher. Um, yeah. But I'm interested in what he's doing. Um, I find that... It's from another generation, for sure. Yeah. 
But I can read that work and find, and aesthetically it's beautiful to me. Whereas I don't necessarily have that feeling for uh, Chippendale. I have the big, uh, whatever that big ninja. Book was. Is it ninja or maggots? I can't remember. Maggots is a little one. Ninja's okay, the, I've got them the surfboard. I've got to say, I haven't read a thing in them. I flipped through them. Well, it's interesting because um, I, I'm not big on maggots or ninja, but he did a mini comic that was really good, Galacticrap. Okay, that was really not. interesting. And um, but with uh, Brinkman, it just seems more like it's this world that you're kind of jumping into. Yeah, I like it. I find it interesting. I think, I think all that Fourth Thunder stuff is kind of of interest to me, but it's, it doesn't really. It's not the kind of thing that really grabs me. Um, I'm curious to see what they're doing, but there, I guess there's a, a threshold of how much of it I can read. Um, I find that a lot of this stuff had. How do I put it? It's it's kind of like the underground period. There was a lot of stuff going on, and it's all kind of interesting, but but you only have to kind of see what rises yeah, to the top. Exactly. Still. So I'm going to wait and see. I, mm. I've not. Um, I wouldn't. You know, I wouldn't. If I was making a list of my favorite cartoonists, I probably wouldn't put anyone on there. But I am interested in following what they're doing. I'm curious. I'm curious how it will develop. I was wondering, um, are you able to read comics the same way? Getting so can I, understanding the language, can you just read them for enjoyment? Oh yeah, sure. All the time. Um, I still read a wide variety of stuff. Um, I don't read comics with the same passion I used to. Mm-hmm. Um, or things about comics. I think that I... Two reasons. Sometimes I'm sick of comics and the world of comics, and I'd rather just read a book, or I'd rather not think about the world of comics. Uh, but other times I think it's... I. They don't have. Uh, I'm not quite as hungry for it as I used to be. When I was in my 20s, I was like so hungry for cartooning. I just loved it in a, in a way I don't now. I tend to get most excited when and really enjoy the work when it's the handful of cartoonists I'm most interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, this is probably a pretty natural process as you get older. Um, you just tend to. Um, there's certain things that have always, you know, push the right buttons for you, and you're always ready for them. Um, but I still, you know, I still read comics for pleasure. I still go to the beguiling and buy lots of stuff. You can't help but do that there. Yep, and I still read old comics I loved as a kid. One thing I was wondering about is specifically with the John Stanley stuff. Like, I'm presuming you'd read that in a different way now, kind of looking at how to tell your own stories. Or no, I think that actually John Stanley's uh, influence on me is long over. Um, I love the work on a pure pleasure level mm-hmm. now. I think I don't look at John Stanley like... There was a time, I think, again, back in the 80s and early 90s when I first discovered John Stanley that I really burned through his work and took the most influence from it then. Now I think I actually just read it for pure pleasure. I'll pull out those 13 going on 18s, and I just read those because I love that world. And it's like I like to immerse myself in it. Um, Or Lulu. I've just been rereading some of the Lulu... um, Halloween annuals, and they're just very funny. Um, I don't. I think what I have absorbed from him is like is under the skin now, and, and it's not likely to change. Um, one thing that kind of jumped out to my mind when I was reading this is uh, Kim Dykes was here in Vancouver last summer, and I took him book shopping, and he was really going crazy in this one bookstore over these uh, boys' adventure books mm-hmm. from like the '40s and stuff. And I kind of felt like some of the stuff that George brought kind of touched on that a bit. Was that something that you've been interested in is looking like, especially the adventuring part? 
No, not really. I mean, um, George is a funny character. He fits into that world of the 1930s of the uh, gentleman adventurer. Yeah. Um, but he's, um, but it's not true. It's like it's, um, it's what George would like to believe about himself. I find that George is kind of based on a handful of characters from that time. People I remember from the media and a couple of people from real life that were kind of larger than life figures, but there was something hollow about them. I mean, I could even include someone like Pierre Burton in this, who I think of with respect, but his public persona somehow didn't seem like a real person to me in a way. It was a big figure. These men from this period who had like a shouldn't have mentioned the name because I don't want to say this about Pierre Burton. He wasn't, <laughs> he wasn't pompous or, um, or a buffoon, but some of these characters had a kind of, um, it's hard to decide whether you could take them seriously or whether you thought of them as, as uh, sort of buffoonish. And a lot of them, especially in Canada, I think of them, they had, um, I don't know, they felt like they were from another time. They were still yeah. lingering around, and I was thinking a lot of those kind of people when I was thinking of George, and they often were connected to some sort of past that had some illusion of adventurousness to it, although whether there was any truth to that, it's hard to say. That um, that identity of that kind of loss, is, it kind of jumps in with the kind of the, the Canadian lost identity as being you know, referenced to the American identity, I guess. And that was something that I noticed. Uh, it's not often there's swearing in your books. Yeah, there's <laughs> a bit, a bit, not a lot. The, the the obvious swear in here, not that I have a problem with swearing, I'm yeah. fine with swearing, um, was the specific towards the American TV, I think, or a spot, oh, yeah. you know. And is that a part of it, is that, that, Canadian, that lost Canadian identity within, well, especially within TV? That's a complicated answer, but because getting into the whole idea of Canada versus the States. Um, I mean, I feel very attached to the Canadian identity. Uh, that has the simple, simply because I'm a Canadian. Yeah. Um, if I was from Finland, I would feel attached to the Finnish identity. Um, the images of Canada's pop culture or Canada's uh, native imagery is very appealing to me, and it's uh, woodsy kind of cutesy cornball stuff that all appeals to me on some level, but I also recognize that that's uh, circumstantial. It's like, uh, again, if I was in Finland, I would like elves or something, but here I'm interested in Mounties and Lumberjacks. So, <laughs> um, but I do find something very charming about the imagery of Canada, and it, uh, it speaks to me, and I think there's a natural impulse in Canadians to um, hate the Americans. It's just, ab it's like what we do. I think almost every Canadian likes Americans on a one-to-one -one basis, uh, depending on the person. But, you know, all my American friends don't feel any different to me than my Canadian friends. When I yeah. go down and see other cartoonists in the States, I don't feel like I'm a fish out of water. It's the same culture, basically. Um, Canada's culture is a regional culture. Probably no different in a way than North Dakota has a regional culture. Um, our regional cultures are very separate here in Canada, too, and uh, yet they're under some collective banner. Well, it's, you know, being a Vancouverite like myself and going to Toronto for, like, the Toronto Comic Art Festival, they're very different communities. Oh, yeah, totally. And it's yeah. uh, and that's something I, you know, kind of stick out as the, the Vancouverite pushing for more mm -hmm. Vancouver representation in things. And even yeah. within the right awards, I was like, 
use a little more uh, West Coast flavor there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, I can understand that. It's a big country uh, and a small population. Mm -hmm. But I think Canadians have a knee-jerk reaction against Americans. Um, we naturally, if the word American comes up, you're probably, it's like stupid Americans or damn Americans or whatever. You don't hear the same thing about Britain or France or anywhere else, and it's very obvious why it is. I mean, we live next to America, and they're a giant, and our culture is very uh, insignificant in comparison, and they don't care about us. And that's, uh, that's infuriating to us as like an insecure country. They like Mexico better than us. They, they like we, they should like us better. <laughs> they don't think about us. We got maple syrup. Yeah. So I mean, I think that just I think Canadians have always been under like a kind of cultural imperialism that um, rings through all their work. Mm -hmm. And I just made it a point that this would be reflected in George Sprott too. I knew that it was going to be in the New York Times, and I wanted to make sure that it was still very Canadian. I didn't want to do the old let's set it in in Cleveland sort of thing, yeah. to keep that Canadian flavor in there. I mean, that old Canadian culture is dying out. Um, Canada is different now than it was even when I was a, a child. Um, and I imagine in 30 years that much of that Canadian imagery will be gone entirely. It's just we're not a frontier people. Uh, we're interested in images of the land, of the north, you know, these sort of 19th century images that have nothing to do with our lives anymore. Which is fascinating because... I mean, even Canada itself, I mean, Vancouver is such a more newer, I mm -hmm. mean... Oh, totally, yeah. You know, it's not that old here, yeah. especially in comparisons to Ontario. Yeah, like, and then when you go towards Quebec, you know, you get much more First city history. in North America. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, but that will change. I suspect that the culture in Canada in 20 years will reflect, or 40 years, whatever, will reflect much more of the immigrant experience, whatever groups have become prominent. You even see it in Canadian writing now. A great deal of Canadian writing is really about where people came from. Yeah. That's just a natural progression. I'm still very connected to that old image of Canada, um, that image that's obsessed with creating an indigenous um, imagery that goes back to before the Group of Seven. That stuff really speaks to me. But I do recognize that that is not a primary image in Canada anymore. We never created an urban pop culture for ourselves. We've, we're bogged down with the idea of the, uh, the wilderness, and it really reflects very few Canadians' lives. Yet we're still, it's like Glenn Gould said about the idea of North. The idea of North that interests us, not the North. None of yeah. us have ever been North, and we'll never go. But the, but feeling it over top of us, it's like the American frontier. It added some flavor to the Canadian culture. It was always a little further to go. Yeah, although I'm not sure that that really is true anymore. I don't think that the the idea of North holds much sway over Canadians any longer. No, I mean uh, West Coast wise, there's still a very strong aesthetic. Like we don't have much of an art scene here. Mm -hmm. But if you want to go mountain biking or camping or something, you'll find plenty of people to... Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, that seems a very West Coast image. Which doesn't drive with me very easily. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're not going to see me out in the outdoors. Um, design aesthetically, I seem to remember The Crazy Show, um, which you're the part curator of the, the comic part with, uh, with Mr. Spiegelman. Mm -hmm. Um in a while, I'm trying to remember. You had, um, if I remember, a sketch or kind of a process of was it Sprott's hotel room? Could have been. A lot went into kind of planning that out. 
That's true. I mean, well, Spot in many ways was both very well worked out and also worked out on the fly. Yeah. Because I had tight deadlines. Um, in some ways, it might have been uh, a lot more done with real expediency than some of the other work. But even that said, um, the details are always really important to me. Uh, progressively in my work, I think I'm a bit more interested maybe in the details than the story. I see myself moving towards a period where maybe I'll start doing some stories that don't have any characters in them. <laughs> I'm really interested in the environment. Um, certainly in George's room, it was very calculated because it had to have like a bunch of stuff that reflected the surface of his life um, in a way that it's really, there's a thin line between like trying to transmit emotion and cartooning and being corny. It's very difficult. You know, you draw a picture, drawing George's room and you've got on the wall, one of the images is uh, of him as a child holding a little like stuffed rabbit and on the couch in that room is that same stuffed rabbit with like a torn ear and an eye missing, you know. And that's like a very straightforward emotion you're transmitting that there it's still there. He's still got that toy from when he's a child. I mean, that's very on the thin line of just being disgustingly sentimental. <laughs> um, yet on the, on the flip side of that is like that is human emotion. Yeah. That's, you want to make those small connections. You've got to take the chance of of of, of appearing um, trite if you want to try and make these broad connections to a character. A character like George is very broad, and so it's important to have, like, all those images are very calculated. There's a, there's a nude painting on the wall that would be, like, you know, kind of a, considered risque, maybe, in, like, 1920. There's, like, a truss on the floor that, you know, speaks of being an old man. There's a card from his, a birthday card from his niece. It's, like, all this stuff is quite calculated and can be quite obvious, but it's also, you have to do that if you want to try and transmit certain emotions about a character. And it kind of follows through with the, uh, through the end when his place is packed up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, just the idea of the vacancy of the life. The whole, so much of the point of this broad, I don't even know what the point is. The funny thing <laughs> is, it's like you make up a point for it later, but it's not like when I was working it out, I was making up a set of themes that it would be about, I mean, it's about someone dying, and it's about loss, and that's like as simple as it is. His life didn't mean anything. Uh, so much of George's life gets erased later. Um, I mean, I knew that's what I was doing when I was doing it, but you don't sit down and like work out a plan in that sense. You just kind of so much of writing really is intuitive, mm -hmm. and a lot of it is clearly calculated. You got to sit down and work out, you know, twenty-five installments or whatever. So you have to figure out what every single one of them is about and what they add up to. But on another level, it's like, you're writing about this because that's what interested you, and so a great deal of it is just coming out anyway. Do you, did you approach it differently because you knew what the audience, it would be a different audience? Totally. It was a totally different writing experience than I normally do. Um, the fact that I'd done Wimbledon Green first meant that I was now, I had ad I'd added to my repertoire an approach that was not what I usually use, which is using a certain amount of smaller strips to tell a bigger strip. If I hadn't done Wimbledon Green first, I might have just approached it as the usual continued next week. But fortunately, I'd done Wimbledon Green first, so it opened the door as soon as I realized it was serialized to say, it makes more sense to do a bunch of strips that are self-contained, because people may not even be reading week to week, um, and that would be a more uh, satisfying weekly read, even mm -hmm. if they are following it. Uh, once I decided that, then it became a matter of being able to get a complete 
episode into one chapter, and that makes it that was actually much more difficult than I thought. Because even though each one's a tiny little incident, like that guy walking up to George's room and then seeing the stuff in his room and then the room is emptied, every single one of those, when I sat down and started like working them out, um, you could get about 30 panels to a page was the maximum uh, before it got unwieldy. And almost every single one was about 90 panels when I first started, like the, the amount of stuff. Because I naturally write towards digression. Yeah. I like digression. I like things to wander off. Um, I can't remember what's cut anymore. That's the great thing about editing. Once you cut it out, it's gone. But that process was very different than how I'd write Clyde Fans. Yeah. With Clyde Fans, for example, I would just let it ramble. It doesn't matter. If there's going to be 30 pages of rambling, that's perfectly fine with me. But this, it had to be cut to the bone every time. I would have to fight in working it out just to keep like one silent panel because that would be like, you've got to have a pause in here somewhere. But there's so much material that has to be thrown out. It's like, I need that panel. How was it keeping... Did you stay with exactly what you published in New Yorker? Pretty much. I mean, there's been some re-editing of all the scripts. um, But on the minor level. um, A panel changed, a couple words added back. But you didn't, like, expand too much. I didn't do any expanding on the actual one-pagers. I added in one or two that looked like they were in the Times but weren't, that were stuff that needed that um, I realized as the script went on it would have been nice to put one here or one there. But generally all the stuff that was added was stuff that went between them. It's funny you're talking about uh, how with Claude's fans you're able to kind of flesh things out more, kind of get more, um, you're able to take more time with something. I remember when we talked before, you talked about how laborious it was working at Claude's Fan at the same time. Like the, yeah. Do you s- still kind of use the same methodology as yeah. far as illustration? Nothing's changed. Uh, Clyde Fans is locked into a, a pattern because of the fact that it's, it is what it is. Um, I mean, it changed, of course. I mean, the, this part I'm working on right now, I would not have done it exactly like this seven years ago or whatever. It's yeah. like you you grow and you change. And actually, yeah, the structure of how this chapter is unfolding is different. But fortunately, I designed Clyde Fans so that each chapter would have a different narrative approach. So that has loosened it up a bit for me so that I don't not feel like I have to make it exactly like chapter one. But it is, I mean, comics are drudgery to a big degree. Um, at least the kind of comics I do are not that pleasurable to draw. The comics I do in my sketchbook are pleasurable. I, like, Wimbledon Green was pleasurable to do. Yeah. And that's because the amount of finish on it is much less. And I'm starting to feel like I should just move in that direction entirely and throw out all the high-gloss finish of the work. Well, it seems... He, I'm seeing a lot of transition within your style. Like, especially looking from It's a Good Life, Wimbledon Green, to Clyde yeah. Spence, and this, George Sprott, and the Throw McDonald yeah. are all, like... Definite, especially in the McDonald's strip, I was noticing like your little, uh, I guess, little landscapes, mm-hmm. which seemed really different to me to a lot of your other stuff because you just you're using like here's a color, here's a color, yeah. here's a color, and that's the image. Yeah, that's true. Well, it's evolving. I yeah. mean, I think that's a natural thing. I think my work's getting a lot simpler too. The actual drawing, these things change in a way without you planning it. It's funny. Yeah. I find that when I started out, Clyde fans, I was still very much 
operating it under what I would call naturalistic storytelling, which is where you follow the character around like a disembodied ghost, watching where they go, room to room, and you you see them from different angles, and uh, it's much more like the way you see the world through a, through eyes. I find the work is less. I do less of that now. I still do it. But like something like Thora McDonald, for example, is totally structured in a graphic design approach. Figures yeah. are figures are cartoonier or simpler shapes. Tend to do more stuff that's the full figure, less um, less uh, dramatic storytelling where you cut between establishing shots and close-ups and all that kind of film kind of, of um, terminology. Um, I find that I'm getting more and more attracted to the idea of. More, slightly more formal approach to the page. Which is funny because that was something where you had the chance to really go full out and do all these weird mm-hmm. big shots and you I guess tightened it up and closed it up. Yeah. Well I wanted the density. Yeah. Um, I know there was complaint in about uh, some of the stuff in Kramer's that it wasn't like they, people didn't take advantage of the page. But I think that that's a limited way of looking at taking advantage of the page. That was my one chance to do a giant page that was super dense. Yeah. Well, like uh, Josh Simmons did the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. And for me, it was exciting to be able to do something that was dense, that wasn't just one giant grid. Yeah. That I could do like, a great deal of little pieces that all interlocked together. Um, I, you know, I could have done a giant drawing on one page and then some stuff on the other, but that just didn't seem of interest to me at the time. I knew that there would be people doing big drawings in there, and that's great. I actually think what Chris Ware did was the smartest thing in the whole book, uh, which is never a surprise. But, <laughs> but putting the life-size baby in there was just a brilliant idea. Yeah. I was very jealous of that idea because it was like, that's the thing that brought all that dense storytelling to life, and I didn't think to do anything of that sort. That yeah. really was a brilliant idea. I think Chris is uh, well ahead of everyone else on the curve. He is. He's way ahead of everyone else on the curve. That but that's great because it's always good to have people that are to aspire to the yeah. quality of what they're doing. He really steps up the game. He certainly did. I think you can look at the history of modern cartooning in the last 50 years or whatever and you can like list two or three markers, people like Crom and Spiegelman and Ware, that have changed the landscape of comics. There's been a lot of great cartoonists in that period, too. People I hold in the highest regard, but they've not changed the landscape like those three. I'd have to give more thoughts if I'd add anyone to that list, but but that's these guys were really giants. Yeah. Um, whereas somebody like uh, Dan Klaus or, or, or Chester Brown or Ben Catcher, these men are absolutely like well genius artists really too but they didn't their work didn't change the landscape doesn't mean they didn't have a million imitators but it's there's something fundamental in certain artists that change the way people look at the medium and I that's think, great yeah. and even in those guys they, they've brought different ideas to the medium like Chester oh, yeah. brought like well they've enriched yeah. the medium in, enormously and I'm not in any way like downgrading yeah. that I mean every those three artists I just listed are among my favorite artists and people that will be remembered for, you know, yeah. in all histories of the future. But in a strange way, as much as Dan's influence, for example, um, has been so pervasive, I would say he's had more influence than Chris, in a way, because I would say more cartoonists have probably tried to imitate Dan, really, than imitate Chris. Uh, certainly stylistic stuff has been taken from Chris. But in a strange way, he didn't change the, the syntax of comics as much. Well, I mean, it was... 
Klaus' stuff is a lot more traditional narrative based while Chris is taking that narrative and pushing you in three directions at the same time while you're involved with that narrative which yeah. I find really fascinating so you kind of jump in there and then all every little piece of the page yeah. is specific Chris understands the language of comics in a different way just like Spiegelman did too yeah. Spiegelman gets short shrift over these kind of things it's funny because he really was a giant he is a giant um, and Crumb too I mean Crumb doesn't appear to be a formalist in any way but Crumb's work changed the very nature the very syntax of comics as well it's, this is a, a dicey conversation because it implies that certain artists are better than other artists and I'm not trying to make that uh, it's not a canon- canonical yeah no. Yeah, it's like I, you know, I would, I would not argue. Every one of those artists I just mentioned is all in the same group. Yeah. It's just they have different strengths, and uh, and sometimes they're the same strengths. Um, but some of some people just have um, their work is more about how the storytelling operates. No, and uh, I'll, you know, one thing I've seen through the years of doing the show is crumb especially so many folks just they wouldn't be cartoonists without crumb oh, or yeah. crumb like even um, his peers like Kim Deitch was on just like how important crumb is like Absolutely. and it's like you don't often see that people from the same group speaking with such high regard yeah. high values for yeah absolutely well for me it's always been crumb people are always surprised that crumb's an influence of mine I think they're irritated. But <laughs> um, Crumb and Schultz are the two poles of influence that made me a cartoonist. In many ways, I think of them as very similar. It's just that they're at different ends of a spectrum. They're both doing the same kind of work, just in a very different way. Reminds me of something. I was um, taught, did a thing with Eddie Campbell over the summer, and he um, he really derides comics and has a kind of contempt for the concept of comics at the same time while creating them. Really? And I thought he was a big fan, a big lover of the history of comics. I don't know that he much. He is. But. He is. It's modern. It's it's really complex, the way he okay. sees comics. One thing he said um, was he looks at modern comics and it's like, especially genre-based, he doesn't see them as comics, he doesn't put okay, them as comics. Okay, sure. And then, but he said like stuff like, specifically, he mentioned you and Spiegelman, as kind of creating something outside of comics. Well, I don't know about that. It's funny. I, I'm, I'm, in, I'm an inclusive type. Mm-hmm. I tend to pull things in rather than push them out. I think it's all comics. Um, I think, I think those horrible genre books coming out from Marvel and DC are comic books. <laughs> I may find them repulsive on the surface, like for what they look like to me, but they're clearly operating as comics. Um, I mean, I think it's a pretty broad spectrum. The comic book can hold quite a bit in that little envelope. There's, it's really such a simple, that's so a simple bag of tricks. I mean, it's uh, juxtaposed images and uh, mixed with words, so that covers quite a quite a range of uh, material. Tell me about um, process right now of um, how you do set up a page. I know. I don't. Are you doing similar to what Chester's been doing? No, I never work like Chester. Okay. 
Chester and I have never agreed on anything of that sort. <laughs> Chester works in a completely crazy manner, as far as I'm concerned. He composes each panel one at a time and then sticks them down on a page randomly, basically. I mean, he doesn't worry about what the last panel looked like in any great... Well, he also, even within that panel construction, does he do the overlays? Yeah, I do overlays. I mean, I work on a light table. I can, But I always construct everything as a spread. Yeah. Um, I think the spread is the natural form of... Uh, of the design of, of a book. Um, that's the way a book operates. You open it up and you see both pages at once. So it's important that they operate with each other. And then within each panel, within each page, there are dynamics that operate against each other. And then within each panel, there are you know um, shapes that have to coordinate with other shapes. It's all just a matter of moving shapes around. Um, I don't think of cartooning as drawing so much as I think of it as graphic design. Um, Obviously, you're drawing. You're drawing yeah. the guy walking down the street, and there's a house. But it's more important what angle the street is going at, what shape the person is, and how that compare, how that interacts with the panel next to it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I draw every. I work out the page, the spread first. But then I have a light table, and I work out each panel at a time on a separate piece of paper, and tape it onto the onto the grid. And then when I put the next panel up, if it doesn't work, I just tear it off and fix what's wrong with it. If the horizon lines are battling each other or something, the new panel goes up and eventually you construct this spread and you, you sit there and look at it while you're working on the next page and you realize that big head in the corner is causing conflict or whatever, you tear it out. Um, so it's very, it's, it's kind of organic at the same time, it's very well planned. And probably approached differently with each. It so. is. I mean, like working in a sketchbook, you don't do that. I mean, I'm, been, I'm working on a long story in my sketchbook right now, and it's all little panels. I find this is a, like that. Um, Thoreau McDonald is an example. I find I like working in little panels now because it forces you to really cut down the amount of information per panel. It's it, it's really interesting when it's used well. Like I don't know if you ever read Grendel. Uh, uh, what? Red Grendel. I don't even recognize those words. What are Grendel? Words? Oh, Grendel. <laughs> yeah. was, I, okay, I've heard it. Well, yeah, I know what Grendel is. Sure, um, and it was interesting, Matt Wagner did really did some really neat stuff um, where, when he was illustrating his own work where he would do the little, the little panels, which really, I found, I don't know if many people had done much before that. As far as not to say he's coined the little panel. He doesn't yeah. own the little panel. I'd have but to it, think about it for... I'm not even sure what the history of using a lot of panels on pages. <laughs> I know Taken did a lot with uh, TV representation of his uh, American flags. We're going right into genre there. Yeah, that's stuff I'd rather not think about. Um, <laughs> I still have a great resentment towards American flag because when I was a young uh, cartoonist and I loved Love and Rockets, I went into a comic shop and they said, is there anything else like Love and Rockets? And the guy who ran the comic shop said, here, buy these 10 issues of American Flag. So I bought them. And I have never forgiven that person. It <laughs> uh, still makes me angry. Was Love and Rockets your gateway? It was my gateway. It's funny. I came to a few things at just the right time. Um, I, uh, actually, the cartoonist Ken Stacy was um, the art director at Vortex Comics. Mm. And I went up to Vortex Comics when I knew very little about anything outside of mainstream comics and I went up and I showed him some terrible comic strips I had done that were kind of um, I don't even know how to explain them I suppose they were gory-ish maybe um, this is when I was like quite young in my early 20s and um, he looked over my stuff and he took me he took me right over to the comic shop and he said buy this comic and it was 
Love and Rockets number three. And that was like a pivotal change in my life. Right around that same time I had been just starting to look around in comic shops in Toronto. I, I kind of had a brief period after my teenage comic reading and this period where I didn't go into any of those places. And so finding Love and Rockets number three, and at the same time I bought a stack of uh, undergrounds that had a pile of crumbs in them. And it, it's like seeing the crumb work reminded me of that I read Crumb as a teenager. Suddenly I dived into that and then dived into Love and Rockets. And those two things really changed the course of what I was doing. And that was very important to me at that age. Um, I'm wondering if you ever got into anyone like Alex Toth. Well, I love Toth, you know, as a stylist. Yeah. Um, I don't have any great interest in Toth beyond that. Um, I think that the work he did is beautiful um, journeyman cartooning. There's lots of journeyman cartooning, I think. Cartoonists who I think were great. Um, but they don't get into my like highest echelon of favorites just because of the fact that um, the work is limited by the subject matter. Yeah. Um, I love Kirby a lot more than Toad because I actually think Kirby's work, the writing, is of interest. And, I'm, and I'll be honest, I'm surprised you're a Kirby fan. <laughs> yeah. See, people never think I'm a Kirby fan, but Kirby was my main interest as a teenager. Which is, I, I guess maybe that's Speakman's fault, because he almost has contempt for Kirby. I think he's come around. Yeah. I think that, I don't think Art Spiegelman would list Kirby as a favorite artist, but I think he's come around to see that he was a, he's a, an important force in North yeah. American cartooning. To me, Kirby is like a sad story, because Kirby was possibly the most talented adventure cartoonist that ever lived. Um, certainly the greatest stylist that ever worked in regular comic books. And yet his career was dogged by the idiocy of mainstream publishing, by editors fucking around with his work and holding him back. I feel like if Kirby in some alternate reality had been like in Hergé's place, there would be like a body where of he was celebrated work. Yeah, and where he had like a series of albums or something where he could complete a thought and move on. I think that's what Kirby was about, coming up with new ideas, carrying them out, completing it and moving on. But the serialized nation, nature of that stuff, the editors uh, manipulating his work, like a huge series of circumstances, kept him from ever fully realizing his dream. Now, I don't think, I'm not like kidding myself that Kirby's dream was to create these great graphic novels that we would now be like... Uh, pulled over with their adult content or something. Yeah. But I think that he had a super imagination, and those would be interesting books. They would be interesting books in the way that Narnia is very interesting. He would have created an interesting world, a complex world, a crazy world, I'm sure. <laughs> but it would have been great. Great work, and you all you feel from most of his work is the, sadly, the lost chances. Yeah. Um, I think like a lot of that stuff is enormously fun, but it's all tainted in a way. And that's the sad part. But every, everything he did was really dynamic and exciting. One of my favorite things that he did was his autobio strip. Yeah, that's pretty... Pager. Actually, that story breaks my heart in its craziness. It's yeah. like, that, that strip, it's like, I don't believe one word of it when I see that. I don't believe that that reflects his childhood in any oh, way. Oh, not at all. <laughs> it's, it's like New Gods meets childhood, yeah. but it's still yeah. like... Just it's imagine what he could do if he yeah. could just tell any story yeah. he wanted. Well, I think Jack could have told any stories he wanted. They would have always been kind of um, 
really over the top, though. Yeah. It's the nature of his work. <laughs> yeah. Some people are subdued. Some yeah. people are. Uh, yeah, exactly. Over the top. So what what is next for you? Well, really, what's next for me is a couple of years of Clyde fans to finish it off. Yeah. Um, Palookaville has changed into a little hardcover starting next issue. That's Same done. Uh, height and width, or no, it's a little smaller. It's probably pretty close to that uh, uninked catalog we've got there okay. next to you. Um, it's actually almost exactly the same size as the Raymond Briggs book that DNQ put out. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that's in the can, which unfortunately won't be out till next fall, though. Um, I wanted it out a little earlier, but that didn't fit in the DNQ schedule. So hopefully, so by then I'll be done another one by the time that comes out. And basically, I'm just I got to finish up Clyde fans in the next couple of years. Don't let yourself get distracted. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Basically, the um, there's always a lot of things going on at the same time, but Clyde has to come to an end. It's been going on way too long. It's hanging over my head. Um, and then I've got another book I want to dive right into. And at the same time, I'm working on scripts in my sketchbooks and stuff like that. Is the extended time of Clyde kind of... Has that been kind of a really big point for you, moving away from the serialized nature of realizing that maybe this isn't working? To There's a new approach to serialization I'll be taking, which is the next story I'm doing will probably be six chapters. Yeah. And each chapter will come out in a self-contained story within these little hardcovers. And so there, the funny thing is that Clyde fans was shaped by the comic book. And the it's funny how the format changes the nature of the work. When I started Palookaville, I thought like you have uh, 24 pages, so you do a 24 page story. Yeah. Then I moved into uh, Good Life, and I was like, okay, so now each, each issue is a chapter. But then I realized that wasn't enough space for me was the problem. And so when I moved into Clyde, I was like, okay, well, we'll make about each chapter be about three issues. And, um, and that shapes like how you, the page count is, it determines the narrative in a way. Yeah. Um, I've realized now from doing Clyde fans over this long period of time in that fragmented format that that's not a good way to read it. Um, you need a self-contained unit. And so that's how the next book's going to have to be. And fortunately, since it's in a uh, hardcover now, I can determine the page count of that unit. So it could be a 30-page story or it could be a 60-page story, but it'll be okay because I'm not... I don't have to say, like, oh, well, I'll have to have this chapter split in half over two issues. So that really is a, an advantage. And that will make it less stressful for me because I know that people will get a chapter that is self-contained. It doesn't matter if they even read the rest of the book. They got a story that was fully realized within that one volume. I'm well, looking forward to it. Thank you so much, Seth. My pleasure.